Look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, we the people. Welcome to the Lex Rex Institute podcast. I'm your host, David Truschel. Tragically, this week I will not be joined by LexRex President Alexander Haberbush, who is busy with things like actual legal work and zealously defending the rights of our clients. My apologies to everyone. I would say listening to the podcast without him is like seeing your favorite band without their lead singer, but it's probably more accurate to say that it's like showing up to see your favorite band and finding out that everyone except the roadies came down with hantavirus. But seeing as we didn't do the show at all last week, and since our idea of doing a post-Thanksgiving special is becoming more irrelevant by the minute, we decided I would do a little something for you. I promise I'll keep it quick. Before we get into the program, I do have some exciting news. Thanks to the generosity of one of our supporters, our grant matching program has been extended through the end of the year. That means if you make a donation to the LexRex Institute anytime through December 31st, 2022, your donation will be matched. That's double the freedom for your dollar. As always, your donations are tax-deductible and go toward LexRex's mission of educating the American public about our constitutional rights, as well as funding the work we do in the courts. We consider it one of our core principles to keep legal costs to the absolute minimum for our clients, but we do need your help to do so. You can find more information at LexRex.org donate. That's L-E-X-R-E-X dot org donate. Anyway, with that out of the way, let's talk about the pilgrims. Naturally enough, we'll begin with the First Amendment. Specifically, the Establishment Clause. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So, what is an establishment of religion? We're probably most used to hearing the word establishment as a funky synonym for building, often when a crotchety business owner tells some no-good punk kids to get out of his establishment, at which point Fonzie casually turns on the jukebox with his fist and tells everyone to relax, or something like that. It's been quite a long while since I've seen any reruns on TV land. So, is that the kind of establishment we're talking about? In that case, it would mean Congress can't make laws about churches or temples or mosques, right? Well, no. Establishment means the act of establishing. In this particular case, it means that Congress cannot create an established religion, a church or sect that has some kind of official status in the country. At this point, there may be some bells ringing in your head. That's right. England had an official religion and the pilgrims came to America to escape it and have religious freedom. Well, not quite. True, the Pilgrims didn't like the official Church of England. True, they were interested in what they might think of as religious freedom. But that didn't mean getting rid of the idea of an established religion. It meant being free to run the established religion the right way, as they understood it. So let's back up a minute. What was the official Church of England? Today we call it the Church of England, sometimes also the Anglican Church. Legally speaking, the Church of England began in 1534, when Parliament passed the Act of Supremacy, which declared that the monarch of England was the supreme head of the Church of England. This meant repudiating the authority of the Pope, and, essentially, setting the English Church up as a separate entity from the Roman Catholic Church. You can't have a body with two heads, after all. You probably remember that this had something to do with Henry VIII wanting a divorce, and that's all true. What you may not know is that religious opinion in England was already deeply divided. Remember that this is about a decade into the Protestant Reformation, and plenty of English clergy were already adopting the new Protestant ideas. 
On the other hand, Henry and lots of the nobility were inclined to be very conservative in their religion and didn't want to rock the boat any more than was necessary to let Henry acquire as many wives as he needed to produce a male heir. The theology of this new church drifted slowly but steadily away from Catholicism, but lots of the structures and practices were kept intact. The Church of England still has bishops, for instance, and the vestments the clergy wear are still very similar to those used in the Catholic Church. This made some people happy, and some people very, very unhappy, including large numbers of the priests and bishops within the church. Those who wanted to make the church more Protestant and less Catholic often talked about the need to purify the church. People who were happier with the status quo or had Catholic sympathies took to dismissively referring to these people as Puritans, and the name stuck. Not all Puritans had exactly the same views, and it's easiest to see this in the range of opinions they had about church government. Some of them were happy enough to keep making use of bishops. The technical term for government by bishops is Episcopalian. Some of them wanted what amounts to a kind of church republic governed by elected elders. We call that Presbyterian or sometimes synodal. And some of them wanted each congregation to make its own internal decisions by vote, with no formal government beyond the level of the individual church. We call that congregational. Any of you on the East Coast will probably recognize all of those words from church signs, because all three of them, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, and Congregational, eventually became independent denominations. And that brings us back again, finally, to the Pilgrims. The Pilgrims were Puritans, or nearly all of them were anyway, who had gotten so fed up with the official church that they moved to Holland, where the church was closer to what they wanted. They found they didn't particularly like living there, though, too many Dutch people for their tastes, and decided to give the New World a try. England had already attempted to establish settlements in America by this point. Jamestown in Virginia and Roanoke off the coast of North Carolina had already been the sites of colonies, but the Roanoke settlers disappeared in what still remains a bit of a mystery. It's an interesting topic if you care to do some investigating. And the Jamestown colony was struggling to survive. But interest in settling the new territory remained high. Investors in England formed multiple colonial companies and obtained charters from the crown, giving them the right to settle particular parts of the North American continent on specified terms, which included a fairly high degree of self-government. That was the important part to the pilgrims. As a chartered colony, they would be able to set up a church with rules they would draft. So, in a very real way, they were interested in religious freedom. But it was a freedom to do something, rather than a freedom from any kind of control. That may sound a bit odd to modern ears, but the same basic attitude was pretty much universal in European society at the time. Most countries that remained Catholic throughout the Reformation ended up expelling Protestants, and Protestant countries generally outlawed the Catholic Mass. Most countries instituted legal penalties for failing to conform to the official religious policy. In England, for instance, the head of the household was required to attend services at the official church or pay a fine. So very often, Catholic families would hold secret Masses at their homes, because, by the way, England also forbade Catholic clergy to be in the country for a long time. And the father would trudge off to an Anglican service in town while the wife and kids stayed home. The same attitude prevailed for the most part in the colonies. Most of the original 13 had official religions. Even after the ratification of the Constitution, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Connecticut maintained state churches for several more decades. But in the meantime, most other parts of America had gradually abandoned the idea of an established religion. Part of this was due to an increased interest in religious tolerance in general. The Thirty Years' War, which was a massive continent-spanning conflict in the mid-1600s that devastated European populations and economies, had been closely relinked to religious issues, and it had definitely soured many people on the idea of enforcing religious policies by force. 
Part of it was due to changes in the religious landscape itself. The Great Awakening, which was a series of religious revivals of the 1730s and 40s, was a massive success in the American colonies, and it resulted in huge swaths of the population changing their religious affiliations away from the established churches of their areas to other churches, which is in large part how the majority of the American South went from being Anglican to being Baptist or Methodist. This often ended in the disestablishment of the state church, since it lacked broad support. Fun fact. You may remember how some people say the longest word in English is anti-disestablishmentarianism. That's a reference to established churches. It means opposing the people who want to disestablish the state church. So, you know, keep that in your back pocket. In my opinion, though, the most important factor in the Constitution forbidding the creation of an established church, even when some of the states continued to have one, was an implication of the basic political idea that had animated the Founding Fathers. Government has to be limited. There are some things that the government has no business interfering with, and the freedom of religion and conscience is one of them. Ultimately, every state ended up disestablishing voluntarily. Massachusetts held on the longest until 1833. Does that mean a state could declare an official religion tomorrow? Well, no. But that's thanks to the 14th Amendment, which wasn't introduced until 1868 and probably didn't have state churches in mind. By that time, though, re-establishing a church would have been all but unthinkable to the American public, despite the fact that, then as now, America was probably the most enthusiastically religious society in the Western world. It's a unique achievement of our history that we managed to make it seem intuitive that religious matters need to be kept free from compulsion or government interference. Plenty of societies still have vestigial forms of an official religion, even where the population is very irreligious. Tax money in Germany is used to support local churches. The French government owns all churches and synagogues that were built before 1905. As we mentioned on the show a few weeks ago, the newly crowned King Charles took an oath to uphold the Church of Scotland and is the head of the Church of England. So what about the pilgrims? Obviously, they weren't advocates of religious freedom as we understand it today. They were very eager to make sure people were kept in line in their religious beliefs and practices, which is how we ended up with Rhode Island. But I do think there was a germ of an idea there that played a part in America's eventual commitment to separating church and state. The Pilgrims wanted the church to have authority on its own terms and by its own rights, instead of being a tool of the crown. That's why it was so important to have a colonial charter. It spelled out their rights in clear terms. In fact, the greatest political crisis that ever occurred in New England, except maybe for the War of Independence, was the revocation of their charter. The English Civil War is probably a topic for another time, but after the Stuart monarchs were restored, they converted New England into what's called a crown colony, meaning it would be directly administered by the king and his appointees. This was especially concerning, given that the Stuarts loved to ride the line between Protestant and Catholic, which was never a good way to placate Puritans. They eventually got their charter back, in a modified form, after the Glorious Revolution restored a definitively Protestant monarchy. But in the long run, religious freedom as we know it came to be in America more as a means to protect the independence of the churches than to insulate the government from religious ideas. There's a reason we talk about the separation of church and state, which are institutional terms, rather than religion and politics, which are conceptual terms. We often get that backward today. The point of the First Amendment is to make sure that everyone enjoys their fundamental right to religious expression, not to make sure that nothing that seems religious, whatever that means, ends up influencing things that are political, whatever that means. Well, that'll do it for me. 
Again, I cannot apologize enough for being the only one talking in this episode. I'm sure this is no one's idea of a, a great episode of the show. But as a way to make it up to you, here's our disclaimers, which are pre-recorded, so you can get at least a few seconds of Alexander. Thanks, everybody. Please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice, and all of the opinions expressed are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the Lex Rex Institute. The Lex Rex Institute is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. If you'd like to learn a bit more about our organization's activities or make a donation, please visit our website, www.lexrex.org. L E X R E X.org. As a reminder, this podcast is a legal issues podcast, not a political issues podcast. We try to keep our commentary strictly to legal issues. Today, now that more issues are considered political than ever before, we believe it's especially important to distinguish between the two. Thanks for listening to the Lex Rex Institute podcast, and we'll see you again next week.